Um, Satan is enemy number one of the church. I don't think anybody would dispute that. Ever since the resurrection of Jesus and uh, his ascension back to heaven, Satan has been raging. He's been fighting mad, and he is on a mission to destroy God's people. He's on a mission to destroy the church. In chapter 13, John tells the church that Satan uh, is not alone in his war against the church. In chapter 13, John tells about two beasts that are under the authority of Satan. The first beast, which came up out of the sea, we saw that last week, we said represented uh, government oppression, working against Jesus and His church. The second half that we're going to look at today of chapter 13 shows that the first beast is not alone. There's a second beast. The second beast rising up, up out of the earth is the beast of false religion. That's who this beast is. His role is to deceive and intimidate people into worshiping the first beast. The beast of false religion, which is the second beast, the beast of false religion, like the first beast, he hates believers. He hates the church, and he exercises all the power that he gets from Satan to break down the truth in order to deceive Christians, in order to deceive the church. That's the job of this second beast, this beast of false religion. So there's a relationship between these two beasts. Uh, the beast from the sea is a world political power, government oppression, and the beast out of the earth is a religious institution that promotes worship of the first beast. We'll see that as we walk through here. So what you see on your handout there, the main idea, is the false prophet deceives, and I'll explain that in just a second. The false prophet deceives and intimidates people to worship Satan. The false prophet deceives and intimidates people to worship Satan. So look at verses 11 and 12. We've outlined it this way, the description and work of the false prophet. Uh, this next section begins with John. He sees another beast, and this time this beast is coming up out of the earth. Verse 11 says, Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. Well, who is this uh, second beast? Well, this other beast, this second beast, is identified... In other places in the book of Revelation, in particular chapter 16, verse 13, chapter 19, verse 20, and chapter 20, verse 10, and he's identified in all those places as the false prophet. That's who this second beast is. He's the false prophet. Chapter 19, verse 20 reads as follows, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped the image. This second beast here in verse 11 symbolizes false teaching and false religion. That's what, that's what he is. That's what he's doing. The second beast then claims to speak for God and thus represents religious authority that is contrary to God's word and God's ways. Let me say that again. He, he claims to speak for God and he represents religious authority, but that religious authority is contrary to God in his ways. Notice again in verse 11, uh, this beast is a, he's, he's a phony. He's a satanic phony. Notice the false prophet looks like Jesus, but he talks like the devil. 
Notice what it says there. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a what? Dragon. The appearance of the false prophet is like what we see in the Gospel of John when he describes Jesus. How does he describe Jesus there? How does John describe Jesus? I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns. So this false prophet is Christ-like. Do you hear the word I use there? Christ-like. Which may indicate that he will arise from within the church. He very well could come within the church. If you'll remember chapter 12, the dragon is the figure for Satan. False teachers often on the surface appear religious, even innocent, but don't be deceived by their words. They're Satan's lies camouflaged in the truth. He'll look like the lamb, but he'll speak like who? He'll speak like the dragon. And when we get to the end of the chapter here, there's a very compelling call for us here. But we'll get there in just a moment. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, we're told that the serpent is, is crafty. Remember the serpent who is the devil? He, he comes to Adam and Eve there. He actually comes to Eve in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Uh, the serpent, the devil, is crafty. He's scheming. He's always got a plan. He's sly. He's a fox, but he's a liar. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, he comes to Eve And here's what he says to Eve. Did God actually say? Did God actually say? You remember those words he spoke to Eve? Did God really mean that? Did God really say that? In John chapter 8 verse 44, Jesus himself says of the devil, He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and he is the father of lies. Jesus himself warned in Matthew chapter 7 verse 15 that false prophets would come. And how did he say they would come? They would come in sheep's clothing while in fact they would be ravenous wolves. That's who this beast is. He puts on a good appearance. He he looks like the lamb. He's Christ-like, but he is a liar. He is a false prophet. If someone claims to speak for God and claims to be Christian, but craftily causes others to doubt the Word of God, they speak like the dragon. That's what this beast will do. Let me say that again. That's what he's doing now in our world, now as we sit here. He does that. Look at verse 12. Notice this beast, this false prophet, this false religion. Uh, It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. In its presence could be translated on its behalf. So, it exercises all the authority of the first beast on its behalf. The false prophet, the second beast, works for the first beast. This false religion, this false prophet works for who? The first beast, uh, world rulers, government oppression of the church and Christians. He, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth, notice this, and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. So verse 12 points back to what we saw in verses 1 through 10. And it points forward to what we're going to see in verses 13 through 15. Using the authority of the first beast, the false prophet is going to convince people to worship the first beast. False religion is going to cause people, he's going to deceive people, he's going to intimidate people to worship that first beast, which we said was what? 
A governmental power, a world power which oppresses people, leads people away from the true gospel. This second beast is going to deceive and intimidate people to worship that. Notice it says there, the earth and its inhabitants. That, that, those words, they refer to unbelievers. Unbelievers will gladly submit because the beast appeared to have divine power as it recovered from what? This mortal wound. In other words, as we said last week, the beast has his own version of the resurrection. Remember, he, 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 uh, he does a phony impression of the things of God. Anti-Christian religious works, or excuse me, anti-Christian religion works hand in hand with anti-Christian government to get believers to worship it. That's what this beast is doing. And what we have here is a general description of the religious character of this second beast. The second beast puts on a religious show. He has a disguise, a mask, if you will, which again persuades people to do what? Worship the first beast. That is, it. that is who he is. That is the job he's been given by Satan, this false religion. His job is to put on this mask, this disguise, to be just enough Christ-like, to draw people in, to deceive them. But then his, his goal is to what? To point them to worshiping the beast. The false prophet here is a, he's a satanic distortion, if you will, of the Holy Spirit. And here's why I would say that. When you think of the Trinity, what does the Trinity, when you think of the Trinity, what do we see in the real Trinity? Jesus does what? He points people to the Father, and the Holy Spirit points people to who? Jesus. This satanic false trinity, this, the first beast points people to the dragon, and the second beast, this false prophet points people to the first beast, the Christ-like deception I think it's pretty amazing. He's paralleling the things of God. But he's deceitful in doing that. So you have this false religion. His goal is to deceive and intimidate people, to draw people in to worship that first beast. So what in the world would we do with something like that? What, 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 is the, what, do, we, what do we take away from this? As simple as I could put it here, here's what I would tell you. Watch out for lambs who talk like dragons. That's what he said. Watch out for lambs who talk like dragons. Chapter 13 is giving us a word of warning. Just because someone claims to be a Christian does not mean he or she is. Just because someone uses the language of Christianity does not mean he or she is upholding Christianity. Remember, the beast looks like what? A lamb. So we have to be discerning. If someone holds up the Bible and says, this is my Bible. I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. When we hear such things, we need to ask, has this person opened the Bible and actually said what the Bible says? Does this person say that we are what the Bible says we are, sinners under the wrath of God? I don't think you hear that from lambs or people who appear to be lambs but are dragons. 
When this person talks about what we can do, does he talk about proclaiming the good news of the gospel to other people? Does he say, the Bible says we're sinners under the wrath of God, but God has sent His Son Jesus to redeem us from that wrath. And oh, by the way, those of you who profess Christ, you are to be disciples on a mission to take that good news to others. If he says that people are basically good, that it doesn't help people to tell them they are sinners... That the most important thing is to have a lot of money and worldly treasure and that you can be a good person apart from faith in Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. He's talking like a dragon. He's blaspheming Jesus by corrupting the power and the significance of the cross and saying that we really don't need Jesus. Jesus really isn't the great treasure. And Jesus didn't need to go to the cross after all. Also, don't be fooled by how false religion makes its way into the other areas of our society. Don't be fooled how false religion makes its way into the areas of our society. I'm going to give you a couple. Abortion. Sexual immorality. And by the way, unless you've been living under a rock, I don't mean that in a bad way, This sexual immorality, this is an area that has exploded and it will continue to explode. Just this week, the Methodist denomination had a conference to decide on whether they would allow gay ministers and the performing of same-sex marriage within the church. Who would thought that a denomination would ever have to get together and decide, are we going this way or not? And when they decided to go with the Bible, what happened? Persecution. It's obvious that what the culture sees as acceptable, listen to me, it's obvious that what the culture sees as acceptable, those things eventually make their way into the church. We the church don't want to have any heat, we don't want to have any uncomfortableness in the church, so we back off and we give heed to these things. Whatever the culture sees as acceptable, those things eventually make their way into the church. That's what this false beast, this second beast, this false prophet, that's his goal, is to sway the church, pull the church away from the Word of God. And we see that happening in our culture day after day after day, in particular in these last several weeks. So the activity of the false prophet is leading people to worship the first beast, as is summarized here in verse 12. Now it's going to be explained more fully in verses 13 through 17. So you see the tactics of the false prophet. We saw the work in the description. Now we're going to see the tactics of him. Here we see the second beast, how the second beast operates. Basically, he has two tactics. One is deception, verses 13 through 15. And that's what we're going to look at first. The beast of false religion deceives through counterfeit miracles. Now, let me stop here. And I... I know I've said this, and I'll say it a hundred more times until we get through the book of Revelation. We have to look at the book of Revelation as being highly symbolic. Is this literal, what's going on with this beast here? I don't think so. I think it's symbolic for how he's going to work and how he's going to carry out his deception and his intimidation. Notice in verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. What does this false beast, this false religion do? He performs great signs. Jesus said, 
Let me stop here. When we read that verse, we shouldn't speculate, okay? What in the world does this mean? A lot of times we're not never going to know fully what this means, but the Bible gives us enough in other places to have an understanding of what's going on. Jesus said in Mark chapter 13, verse 22, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect of God. Let me read that again. False Christ and false what? Prophets will arise and perform what? Signs and wonders. And what's the intention of that? To lead astray, if possible, even the church. But that's not possible. When I read this, like fire coming down from heaven, I'm thinking, what in the world could He possibly do to make that happen? And I think, oh... Revelation is highly symbolic. I need to stop here. I need to think. Just as Elijah could bring fire down from heaven in 1 Kings chapter 18, so false religion here is supposedly established by signs and wonders. Both Jesus in Matthew 24 and Paul in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 taught that miracles will be accomplished by false Christ and false prophets. Such miracles test believers determining their devotion to God. Notice that Jesus said, if possible, it would even lead the people of God away. So, if it's possible to lead the people of God away, what will it do to the unbeliever? It will lead them away. Now, if you're like me, I'm looking at this, and I'm still thinking, how is it possible to do this? A false prophet, how does he call fire down from heaven? If that is actually what it is, I'm not necessarily inclined to believe it's actual fire. I think it's symbolic for something. How is it possible to do these signs? Well, maybe it's like Pharaoh's magicians in the book of Exodus. You remember that? You remember what happened in the book of Exodus? When Moses would do something, what would the magicians of Pharaoh do? They would what? Duplicate that? They were done through some supernatural, d- demonic power? Anyhow, these miracles are false because, listen, they're false because they don't point people to the truth of the Savior, but instead away from Him and toward lies. If possible, Jesus said, to lead the elect away. He'll perform signs and wonders to lead people astray. Verse 14. The second beast works to deceive people into worshiping the first beast. Notice there, and by the signs that it is allowed to work, and that's very important there, in the presence of the beast it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. So basically what you have here in verse 14, this is idolatry. Make an image. It deceives those who dwell on the earth, unbelievers, telling them to do what? Make an image for the beast, for that first beast, because he was wounded and yet he lives. This is idolatry. God commanded in the Ten Commandments that no carved images were to be made of him, right? Right? No images are to be made. And the New Testament reaffirms that command against idolatry in 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. See, here's what we have to understand. False religion tricks people into worshiping idols. To worshiping things that aren't God. Notice how this 
Idolatry wants to look Christian. They are making an image for the beast that was what? Wounded by the sword and yet lived. If you didn't know better, the point here is this. If you didn't know better, you would think these people were actually worshiping Jesus. That's the point. But they're being deceived. Verse 15, the second beast enforces his plan. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. The false prophet does what looks like a miracle. Again, I think this is symbolic. The false prophet does what looks like a miracle by doing what? Giving breath to the image of the beast. Satan can produce phonies that look like the real thing. I think that's the point of this verse. Satan can produce phonies that look like the real thing. Notice something so we don't get discouraged and we don't despair. Notice that God is sovereign over this activity. The false prophet was what? Allowed to do this. That's a divine passive. It means that authority to do that came from the outside and God allows him to do that. And if your question is why God does that, I'm not really sure. God's sovereign. He has a plan. He does what He does. And all that He does is good. The false prophets, one of His tactics are deception as well as intimidation. Look at verse 15 again. He intimidates in the latter part of verse 15, 16, and 17. Verse 15, Might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be what? Slain. Those that can't be deceived, Satan's going to, he's got a tactic of intimidation. If you don't fall down and worship, he's going to do what? He's going to kill people. What does that cause other people to do? Yeah, I don't want to go there. A good example of this can be found in the Old Testament. Imagine that. In Daniel chapter 3, we read that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were told to bow to what? The image or be what? Burned alive. Remember that story? Bow down to what? What were they to bow down to? The Babylonian king and his rule and his reign and his government. What did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego do? They went battle the image, so what happens? We'll show you. We'll, we'll use you as an example for others. We'll throw you in the furnace. And here's what I would say. The people of God have been through this before, and we will go through it again. You may not be tied and bound up and thrown in a fiery furnace. So how do we, how do we apply In order to be faithful to God at that moment when that persecution comes, you have to be absolutely certain about the differences between the work of God and the work of Satan. If someone is doing what looks like the work of God, but they're not upholding the message that Jesus is the only way of being made right with God, if they're not upholding the gospel, 
They're not doing the work of biblical Christianity. Even if they call themselves Christian ministers. Here's what, I want to go back to this calling down fire thing. Because I know for most of us, that's just kind of like, whoa. Here's how I look at that. Calling down fire from heaven and giving breath to an idol so that it speaks, that isn't really that amazing. It's not really that impressive. But what is exciting are people repenting of their sins. People confessing their sin and asking for the forgiveness of sin that comes through Jesus. That's what's amazing, church. People staying true to the gospel, no matter what it costs them. By the way, here's what I would say to us in applying that. Is people coming to Jesus and becoming disciples, is that a priority for you? Is that a priority for me? Calling down fire is not that impressive. People have been gloriously transformed and redeemed from their sin and brought into the kingdom of God. That's what's impressive, church. That's what should excite us. Notice also in verses 16 and 17 the economic consequences. The intimidation continues. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or on the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. So what does the beast do? He marks those who, who follow him. Look at the way the false prophet uses the mark. In verse 17. How does he use that mark? So that no one can what? Buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the name, or excuse me, or the number of its name. No one. No matter his social class, his influence will be able to buy or sell unless he has the mark upon the forehead or the hand. In other words, people are cut off from society economically and they are ruined financially if you don't follow this beast. If you don't worship that first beast that he's pointing to. So the, pro- so the false prophet is seeking to in- inflict tremendous mental pressure on anyone who disbelieves his signs and does not worship the image of the first beast and does not profess their allegiance to him. There are going to be consequences. Those who refuse to take the mark grow more and more hungry, more and more concerned for the welfare of their families. And more and more uncertain about how they will obtain what they need to live. Verse 7 says that the beast wants to kill Christians. But in verse 17, we learn that doing so will be a long time coming rather than happening quickly. It will be a slow death. Waiting makes it even worse, doesn't it? Knowing it's coming. Nothing you can do about it. Now, if you're like most people, you're going, what about the mark of the beast? We've heard that all of our lives, right? He causes all to be marked on the right hand and on the forehead. 
Simply this mark indicates devotion to the beast or devotion to false religion. Now, many have taken this to be some literal marker imprinted in some way on foreheads and hands to designate people as followers of the beast. Uh, I take the view, like many other things in the book of Revelation, I view this as being figurative. And here's why I'd say that. Remember uh, that we've already seen a similar similar figurative situation in chapter 7 with the sealing of Christians with God's name on their foreheads. This was a figurative way of describing God's ownership and their identification and their allegiance with Him. The mark of the beast on these followers here in verse 16 is Satan imitating God's name written on His followers. It symbolizes Satan's possession of these people and their ultimate allegiance to Him. Will He mark them on the forehead and on the hand? I don't know. I think it's more figurative. It's a way of discerning and pointing these people out as His Followers, Just as God did in chapter 7 with His believers, those who follow Him. And I don't think in chapter 7 God actually put a mark on their forehead. It was just a way of marking people out as His followers. Look at, in verse 18, John interprets the mark of the beast and the, the number of his name. In verse 18 is our application, in a sense, how Christians should respond. Notice those first four words of verse 18. This calls for what church? Wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Throughout the book of Revelation, numbers usually have a figurative meaning. Usually, most of the time, numbers are figurative. If you remember, the number seven is a divine number. The number of perfection or completion, often associated with God in the book of Revelation. And here's what I would say. Compare the number six with the number seven. If seven is perfection, six falls short. 666 is perfect imperfection. It is the fullness of disappointment. And what a perfect mark for false religion. False religion offers the person something, but that something does what, church? It often falls short of the glory of God. False religion seems to get its followers very far But it always, it always fails because there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved than the name Jesus. The government can't save us. There's no political salvation. What we're seeing should make that very clear in our day and time. Vague spirituality won't do it either. False religion always falls short. World religions will not rescue us. They offer a counterfeit, but they end always in emptiness. I think that's the point that's being made here. Thus, those first four words. There's a call for wisdom. 
Which leads me to say that there's a bigger point in verse 18 for the Christian. There's a call to have wisdom and understanding. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man. And his number is 666. Verse 18 is quite clear. There's a call to live with discernment, with spiritual awareness. If you're wondering what you should do in response to chapter 13, this is what you take away, is verse 18. We're to calculate the number of the beast because in some way, that's related to us having what? Wisdom and understanding. We're to understand that the number of the beast is the number of who? Man. And we're told that number is what? 666. So what do we do with that number? Well, some people, and again, I'm not saying that in a derogatory way, have assumed that uh, the number is something of a code that we have to decipher. Um, I don't remember the word that's used. There's a word that's out there that describes this, but here's what they do. You assign numerical values to either Greek or Hebrew letters, and then you sum those up, like A would be 1, and on down the line, you would take the letters of the Greek and Hebrew alphabet, and they are assigned values, and then you sum them up, and the number 666 will reveal the name of some particular historical figure that John is secretly warning his readers about. And believe me, people have done that for years, and they continue to do that. I remember as a boy growing up, Henry Kissinger was going to be this false prophet. Y'all remember Henry Kissinger? Some of you older folks tell the younger folks who he is when y'all get home. I remember as a kid, I'm going, Henry Kissinger? He's going to be the false prophet? He's going to be the antichrist? Again, here's what I'll say. John says that number is the number of who? Man. The number 666 represents complete imperfection. What is anti-God and what is anti-Jesus. All that is in opposition to the one true God. You need to have wisdom. You need to have understanding to be able to discern that. If 777 represents holiness and, and perfect goodness, then 666 signifies the extent and the entirety of evil. Again, I don't think John's intent is to point to any particular individual here. Instead, the kingdom of the beast is a human kingdom, an evil kingdom, instead of a divine kingdom. The nature of humanity apart from God is demonic. I think that's what's being said. The kingdom of the beast promises life and prosperity, but it brings death, misery, and destruction. Be discerning, people. That's what the goal is here. You're being led astray. You're being deceived. And here's how I would conclude. The time in which we live, Christians, church, the time in which we live, the times we live call for wisdom and understanding. Some of you have been around a lot longer than I have. And I don't mean that in a bad way. But things change all the time, right? But I'm here to tell you. I'm 58, and in the last 10 years, man, I've seen things change at warp speed. It seems like now, 
It's every day something is happening. Chapter 13, and in particular verse 18, is a call for the church to have biblical wisdom. The wisdom of knowing God and knowing His ways. That's what the call is for us. Whatever this beast is a real person, whatever this number is, our call is to what? Know God and His ways. Have that wisdom. It's the wisdom of knowing what the Christian life is to be and the best way to live so as to obey God's commands and His rules. In the face of the reality of opposition, verse 10 said we're to have patient endurance. That's from last week. And verse 18 says we're to have wisdom. These are the keys to living God's way in the face of trouble. Revelation 13, and I'll go back as far as chapter 12, provide us with some clear instructions on how we overcome the influence of the beast that comes out of the earth and out of the sea. And I'm going to give you four. It's possible, number one, for a believer to overcome because Christ has overcome and He now reigns. We are to live with this decisively in our minds, in our hearts. Every day when we wake up, we need to tell ourselves Jesus has overcome and He's ruling and He's reigning. The victory of Christ is not in the future. He's already won the victory. It began in the past. Jesus Christ now reigns. That's why the beast is so mad. He knows His time is what, church? Short. This is why He seeks to destroy the people of God. Stop and think about it. He's on a rampage because He knows Jesus has already won. I'm going to take out as many as I can. Number two. We can overcome so long as we develop spiritual insight. The wisdom is called for is spiritual wisdom. We're to recognize that the source of all opposition is from Satan. We're to remember that we wrestle... Ever how you want to pronounce that, depending on where you're from. We're to remember that we wrestle against a power that is greater than flesh and blood. Ephesians chapter 6. Number three. I go back to verse 10. We're to endure patiently and we're to endure with trust. Here's what I've come to figure out. I just say to God, some days, you deal with it. Here's the second part of that. You deal with this, God. This is coming to me because I belong to you. You're allowing it to come, so you deal with it. And lastly, you can be on the side of victory if you learn to be faithful to Jesus. In chapter 12... Verse 11, believers overcome Him by the blood of the Lamb, by their testimony, and by their refusal to shrink back from death if it comes to them. Just like Stephen in the book of Acts chapter 7, they overcome by looking to Jesus. Remember Stephen? Stoned to death? Who was he looking to in that moment when that came? He looked and saw Jesus where? Standing at the right hand of the Father. Stephen recognized that Jesus was standing at the right hand of God. He endured faithfully, knowing that it would what? Cost him his life. And when you and I make the decision that come hell or high water, we're going to stand for Jesus, 
When that decision is made, victory is guaranteed. When you decide, I'm for Jesus, even if it kills me, there's nothing that can destroy you. Nothing. Let's pray.